know, there's nothing like sitting with someone and listening to fascinating stories from the past because there's so much to learn and so much to enjoy through those stories. Today, we get to talk with someone whose riveting stories are now collected in a new book by Dennis Griffin. It's called A Family Business, The Life and Times of Joey the Fixer Salvestri. Thanks for joining Imagine Publicity on Air, which is partner-sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. We cover a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events, true crime, business, history, and books. I'm the host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. I'm a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. But not only do I offer full services, I also offer training to those who prefer to handle it on their own. I appreciate your feedback reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, look us up under Inside Lens Network in I-N-S-I-D-E-L-E-N-Z Network. Keep the suggestions for future episodes coming. Shoot us an email at Delilah at ImaginePublicity.com or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter or through the website. So today... I want to welcome my my sometimes partner in crime, Dennis Griffin, who has who has written another book. Imagine that. You there, Dennis? Good morning, Delilah. I'm <laughs> here. Good morning. Good morning. So, I, I really why don't you just go through a little bit about your own background, how you became an author and how you became interested in, in writing about um, mob things. Okay. I'd be glad to. Yeah. I, after I retired uh, from New York state as an investigator about in 1994, I was kind of bored. So I decided to take up writing uh, actually, I, what I wanted to do was tell the true story of a case I had investigated, except a, a fictionalized account of it. So that was in 1994, and uh, I've currently got 18 books uh, out in print. The um, in, a, in about 2002, I was uh, kind of treading water with my fiction, so I, I switched to uh, to true crime. And through that, uh, my first book was the history of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I, I got into the uh, organized crime area with uh, when I wrote about Tony Spilatro. He was the uh, Joe Pesci character in the movie Casino. And that led to uh, now, I think, my seventh uh, true crime book. And which includes uh, the book we're going to talk about today with uh, with Joe Silvestri. Well, how how did you and Joe hook up to bring this book forth? I mean, did you know each other? And I know you lived in Vegas for a while. Did how did you meet? We met through a mutual friend, uh, a gentleman named Tony Napoli, also known as Tony Nap. He's a good friend of Joe's, and I've worked with him. Uh, uh, also on various projects for several years. Uh, Tony was uh, Tony's dad. In fact, was uh, Jimmy Nap Napoli was uh, a highly respected uh, member, I will say, of uh, a family, a crime family in New York City, and he he handled their, uh, especially their gambling operations and illegal gambling. He probably ran one of the biggest illegal gambling uh, operations in the country. And Tony is his son. Tony, I have a lot of respect for. I think that's mutual. And he contacted me, and he said a, a very close friend of his, Joe Silvestri, uh, had some great stories about his life uh, that he was interested in telling and would I work with him so that that's how this all came about and as a matter of fact uh, Joe and I don't know how many hours we've spent on the telephone and then emails and so forth but at even to this point we've never met in person 
Well, really, you've never met in person, and, and yet, well, you know, I, didn't you do that with a couple other books as well? I mean, you have a knack for pulling the story out of people that, you know, maybe you haven't ever met. Yeah, I, I did. What I, I think uh, what happened, uh, it, I, my belief is that what happened is when I did uh, my first former mobster biography book, which was Collada was the name of it, about the former Chicago Outfit associate, Frank Collada. Uh, the book was, was pretty well received, and I got the reputation through that book of being, I guess, what they might call a stand-up guy. Uh, the people trusted me. They uh, had confidence that I would work. I, I wouldn't just take their story and run with it off in the wilds on my own. I would work with them to uh, to make sure I did everything. I wanted everything to be accurate. That was my biggest concern with these things. And through that, as the reputation built, I started getting contacted by several other people interested in having me work with them to write their books. So uh, it, it took a little time. It was a reputation thing, but I... Once I got the confidence uh, and the trust, I was able to do a lot of stuff by phone and email that uh, that worked out very well for everyone. So we were able to get books done without having to travel to meet each other and that type of thing. So that's the process that you follow. Is, is there like a system that you have in place that works for you? Yeah, whenever I'm approached by by someone, uh, one of the first things I tell them, <clears throat> excuse me, is that accuracy is the key. I have a reputation to protect, and I want them to have credibility. And you know, I'm going to fact check what they tell me as much as is humanly possible. And uh, you know, if I find out that I'm being lied to, uh, that will be the end of our, end of the project right there. It won't go any further. So I really stress the accuracy and honesty piece of it. And as long as uh, I let them know that as long as they're honest with me, I'll you know be honest and work with them. So that's the, my uh, basic platform, and, and that's what I tell everybody to start off with. And I've had a couple of instances where I found I've been misled a little bit, and I've terminated the relationship at, at that point. Well, there is a code of honor, and you have to follow that code of honor, obviously. But, you know, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Joe Silvestri. Joe Silvestri was a tough kid from the mean streets of New York. He went from street brawler to wearing a tux at the glamorous Copacabana. He eventually provided muscle for the mob, a highly respected and feared fixer, the guy you went to if you had a problem that needed to be resolved. He followed mob protocol when having a sit-down with an adversary. You never break bread with the enemy. So tell me, what exactly is a fixer? I mean, if you would like to bring Joe on now, let's go ahead and introduce Joe Silvestri, who is the fixer. I shall do that. Um, yes, as uh, Joe Silvestri, is, as I mentioned, we, we met through our mutual friend, Tony Napoli. And with the countless hours we've spent communicating by phone or email, and what we did was taped, uh, tape-recorded our conversations. Uh, I'd interviewed Joe. We talked about a specific incident or part of his life, and then I would uh, write it up. And, and send it to him for proofing to make sure I didn't miss anything or I had everything right. Um, we decided on on uh, the fixer because what Joe did is, is, is you just stated, if uh, if people had a problem that they felt needed res- resolution, uh, they would frequently contact Joe, and Joe would intervene, mediate, or uh, negotiate, or whatever to to get the problem uh, resolved. So he, they, uh, again, I use the term stand-up guy. He developed a, a great reputation as a stand-up guy. Again, someone that could be trusted. 
and um, you know, and that worked well for him. It, I guess it's like any other career. Once you get a good reputation, uh, you you can certainly use that uh, to further your your career in whatever endeavor you're engaged in. So, so Joey became this uh, the stand-up guy, and uh, based on that, we respected each other. I think pretty much out of the shoot because Tony Napoli had basically vetted. Uh, both of us uh, to each other and uh, the working relationship was great and I'm very excited about the book and now I'd like to introduce Mr. Joe Joey Silvestri. Hi Danny, Hi, how Joe. are you? And good, good, good morning Delilah. Thank you very much for having me. I certainly appreciate it and thanks for that introduction Danny. Uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to just say a couple of things, if I may. Uh, I uh, I grew up in a very normal household. Uh, you know, we were eight children, mom and dad, and it was a very loving, loving house. And I was uh, a normal kid. I had a normal childhood, so it was nothing exceptional. Uh, I always felt, uh, like I say, in retrospect, life was much simpler then. I had an enjoyable childhood, but as I grew older, like anything else, it became more hectic and sometimes uh, a lot more complex. But basically a normal normal childhood, I would say, growing up in New York. I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and I love New York. So if there's any questions you'd like to ask me, Delilah, I'd be more than happy uh, to respond. Oh, well, I'm just excited to have you here with us today. Sometimes, you know, we, we have authors on, but we seldom have the subject of the book. So it's it's very um, exciting to have you with us. So when when did you figure out that, not, not that you were became a fixer, that you could, you could actually take care of things on the street or in the house or wherever there was a problem, you you seemed to be able to step in and fix it somehow. How did that come about for you? Uh, well, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I was uh, rather young, but I always hung out with the older guys. Uh, they seemed to like me because uh, I was very observant. I liked to learn just like me hooking up with Denny was uh, incredible, thanks to our mutual friend, Tony Knapp, and uh, talking to Denny, just listening to him right now, I'm, I enjoy listening to Denny. He's, uh, he's a pleasure. And he said something about truthful and being honest. And I feel if you're going to get into a situation with somebody, whether it's a business relationship or any just kind of a friendship, you, you have to be honest with each other. And I found it very, very comfortable for me that I could talk to Denny about anything, and him being as knowledgeable he is, uh, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here talking to you, and I wouldn't have written a book. And uh, I, I, I realized at a young age that part of my life, I, although, like I said, I came from a very well-respected family and all of that, just a normal, norm, but I end up fighting. I was always fighting even when I was a teenager. And uh, I just thought, like, you know, that was a normal part of life in our environment at the time. Uh, like, you know, we're products of our environment, and uh, I, I certainly was. But uh, the first time I realized that I could actually, actually fight was I was going out with a young girl, and we broke up, and she ended up... I was 15 at the time, and I thought I knew everything about life and love. Dummy. And uh, then I... Uh, she broke up with me. She was going out with a Marine. And uh, we went to a dance one night, and he came in with her. And I was very excited because, you know, 15 years old, a girl breaks off with you. And I was my cousin. And my cousin tells me, go and talk to the guy, see what he's got on his mind. So I, I, I listened to my cousin. I went there, and my cousin gets behind the guy facing me. And we're having a conversation, and he, my cousin's getting a little annoyed, and he, he, he gestures with his hand for me to hit the guy. 
Well, this guy was a 19-year-old Marine. He looked like a refrigerator standing in front of me. I said, holy Christ, how am I going to hit this guy? But my cousin said, most of, if, he, if I didn't hit the Marine, he was going to hit me. Boom, I hit this guy a shot, and I knocked him out. That's when I realized I could really throw a punch and hit. And uh, that was a lot part of my childhood. Okay. Oh, absolutely. So you were you were able to use that talent as you grew up and, and into your adulthood. You know, one of the one of the stories I thought was just really fascinating in the book is how did how you became involved in the Copacabana. I mean, it, in its day, that was like the place um, to be. So tell us a little bit about how you became involved there. What was your your um, your position and about some of the celebrities and stars that you were able to meet okay that, that that's relatively easy i was a, when i first was married i i was driving a truck in a garment setter and delivering cleaning fluid to everybody and the copacabana ordered a case of cleaning food to uh, clean the carpeting the copacabana was like you said fabulous meticulous uh, just to give you an idea of the copacabana mr Podell, who ran the copacabana most of the places at that time, you know, anybody had a place, if you sat at a table and you ordered a drink, and say you ordered, just like, say you ordered Cotty Sock, you'd be sitting at the table, they would give you vodka, they'd give you a well drink. The Copacabana is one of the few places in New York that whatever drink you ordered, you got. If you ordered Johnny Walker Red, or if you ordered Johnny Walker Black, or if you order Seagram 7, or your, any drink that you order, you got to drink. Mr. Mister Botel was strict on that. I delivered this case of cleaning fluid there, and Tony Bennett, it's, it's so amazing, was appearing at the Copa. So his, there was his name on the front of the sign. I said, oh, my God. So I brought the case in, and Mr. Robinson, who was Mr. Botel's brother-in-law, wanted to write me a check. So when he went to the office, I went out, and I stood on the dance on the floor. There wasn't a stage at the Copacabana. There was just a dance floor where every performer stood. So I once stood where Tony Bennett was going to sing the next that night. Lo and behold, uh, so I was nineteen, twenty. At the, I was twenty actually, and then when I became twenty-four, I was working in construction, and uh, I was. Uh, I wasn't enjoying as much as I like being outside and doing physical labor. My brother-in-law, Leo, bless him, he uh, had a friend of his working there. He introduced me to the guy. The guy introduced me to Mr. Podell. I went in for an interview with him. He liked me very much, and he says, listen, there isn't an opening. I was a bartender at the time. Uh, he said, we, 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 I don't have an opening as a bartender, but come to work as a waiter. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not a waiter. I, I can't be a waiter. He said, no, don't worry about that. You just come here. You be a waiter, and in a couple of days, I'll put you behind the bar. So that's what I did. So they put me, I put on a, a crazy, their, their, their waiter's jackets were red and white with gold buttons, and you, oh, atrocious, but you know how you did what you had to do. But I was working there two nights, and I didn't like it. But then... I'd be like the guy that actually got me the interview. He used to work with Paulie, who ended up being my partner. And, and Paulie was off that night, and Julie ended up in a fight with a guy. And I jumped in, and like I said, I was pretty good with my hands. I knocked the guy out, and uh, I thought for sure now I'm going to get the job as uh, working with Julie and Paul. But it didn't work out that fast because... Mr. Podell didn't like the idea that I jumped in like that because I was supposed to be a waiter. So, but I ended up getting a tuxedo. He asked me, you got a tuxedo? All I had was a black pair of pants as a waiter. So they, there was a, a fellow that had worked there prior who left. He left his jacket. So I wore his jacket, my pair of black pants, and lo and behold, I'm working at the door at the Copacabana, greeting people as they came in, directing them to go downstairs to the show or directing them into the lounge. And that's how I got my start at the Copacabana. And to say that it was exciting, it was, it was incredible. It was exciting. It was uh, 
wonderful to see these celebrities and everybody that was anybody came to the Copacabana. I mean, uh, to think about it, I was 24 years old when, when, when Frank Sinatra first came in as a guest. And I had to stand at the table to make sure nobody came to bother him with his party. And uh, when he left, he Frank, and this is a true story. I mean, it's been written a lot of times, but I don't know what, how many people actually experienced it. Frank would get up, put his hands in his pocket, and give everybody a $100 bill. So he went to give me a $100 bill, and I refused it. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, I didn't do anything, and I walked away. Now, I don't know if you ever remembered that or not. I really know. But when he came to work at the Copa, it was the most amazing, amazing experience. I never, the Copacabana had a capacity at that time, maybe four to 500 people, maybe stretching to 500. We had close to 1,000 people every night that he, he appeared at the Copa. He was sensational. He was in great voice. He looked great. And uh, it was so exciting because I used to, me and Paulie would walk him on stage and we'd have to stay at the bottom of the stairs. There's three steps going down into the dance floor. We would stand down there, making sure nobody would run on stage. So we would walk him on stage and walk him off stage. Uh, a quick story that you might like is uh, uh, Mr. Bordeaux had naturally, he was involved with a lot of people, and one of his friends owned a very high-end Italian restaurant, and Frank Schnarch wanted... Denny, I don't know if you know what polenta is. I don't know if you know what it is, uh, Delilah. Polenta is, uh, is uh, a very old Italian dish where they make it on a board, and it's actually cornmeal. And then they could put, you know, toppings on it with sauce or whatever. And he wanted polenta. Mr. Bordeaux and him, they went to his friend's place. They made it for him. Well, he came back, and he had... He drank some wine there, and, you know, he was a, a bourbon drinker. And he had some wine, and he was feeling his oats. He came back. We walked him on stage, and he goes to say good evening, and he ends up burping. True story, Danny. He ends up burping. The crowd went nuts. The crowd went I said, Paulie, imagine this guy fought it. I said, he'd fucking fall on the floor. I said, it was just, excuse me, I didn't mean to use profanity. Uh, but anyway... It was fantastic. And then, like all the other celebrities, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and, you know, I used to walk them all on stage. My favorite was Jimmy Durante because I would walk him on stage and then walk off, and then he would want a chair to sit on because, you know, he was old. He did old. He played the piano. He'd sing. He'd do a little dancing. And he'd say, bring me out a chair, and I would bring him out a chair. And I remember I was 24 years old. I had a full head of hair. And he would grab me by the hair. He grabbed me by the hair. I hate this kid. And then kissed me on the cheek. And uh, it was a nice experience. And then naturally there were other people, um, maybe uh, more colorful people. But it was, it was a tremendous experience for me. Just to be around, wearing a tuxedo, all the beautiful showgirls and some of the beautiful girls that came into the place. It, it was an experience that I relished. And uh, I'm sorry I left it too soon, but I had an opportunity to take over a place, and uh, that's when when I left the Copa. Well, you you've done according to all the stories in the book, you've done a lot of different things. Um, there, there was an incident in the book that you called the base brawl. Tell all us right. about that. I sure will. Well, first of all, again, thanks to Mr. Griffin, then he coined that phrase, and. Uh, it's a rather long story, and I really don't want to get into it, but it was it was a situation with the New York Yankees and some fellows uh, that just won a bowling contest, and they got into a fracas. And it was, uh, it was a sorry situation because the truth, there were so many stories, and people actually who never even were at the Copacabana at the time wrote stories about the situation that was so far from tr the truth that it always bothered me. And uh, as I got, as, and, and all through the years, all through the years, it was always on my mind. And then talking to Denny, talking about it, we decided to elaborate it. And uh, 
we did that. But then he coined that phrase, base brawl, and I liked it very much. And it's it's in a book, and it's it's a hell of a story in plain English, and I'm sure people are going to enjoy that, which I hope they'll enjoy the whole book, but I think especially New York Yankee fans are going to love it. Yeah, why don't you go on to some of the other positions that you held in different types of businesses? I was, you know, I was like really surprised that you had done a lot of different careers, so to speak, a lot of different things like the mortgage business, running a pizza pizza place, all kinds of different things. Well, when, when that all came about, Delilah, it's like I say, after I left the Cope, I took over a big operation, a big place in the Bronx. And I ended, I, I ended up uh, being liked. I was, I was a pretty. I, I never knew what a personality was. I tell you, but I am a personality. I realized that. That a pretty nice personality. People like me, and I'm a people person. And one thing led to another. From the Bronx, when I left the Bronx, managing that big place, I ended up in a small, a little place in Astoria, and then from there I went. Uh, I went back, let me see, I went back to my dear friend had a, a mortgage company later on, and I went to work in a mortgage company, which I liked it because basically at that time uh, the mortgage business was rough and people didn't have great credit. You know, the credit score became such a big thing in getting mortgages that uh, – if you didn't have a credit score and you weren't an A credit with a, a minimal like 650 to 700 plus, you couldn't get a mortgage. So they formed what they call C&D paper. And I got involved with this friend of mine and these two young guys, and uh, we got involved with C&D paper, and we became very, very lucky with it, and we ended up with a, a big bank. I had an interview with a guy, and he liked me a lot, and he says, would I be interested in hooking up with them? So, you know, I discussed it with the boys. They just got screwed from the guy they, they were working with, and uh, we end up hooking up with this big bank, and uh, that's how I got involved with the mortgage business. And everything more or less, even with the gambling. I always liked gambling, and uh, uh, I, I, I gambled a lot, but, like, I wasn't a, a degenerate gambler by any means. I had a pretty, just like I don't drink and I don't smoke, I have pretty good control of myself. But I like gambling. I like the the the, the aspect of it, the money you earn from it. And uh, I end up working for these people as a lugger, and I would pick people up at the spot and take them to the crap game. And I did that for a while, and then because... The owners liked me so much, they put me on the inside. I didn't do the lugging job anymore because, again, my reputation preceded me. And if there was any trouble, I was always able to take care of it, either verbally or physically. And uh, <clears throat> I enjoyed that for a while, and I really got involved with that. Then I got a job with a big, big crap game in downtown New York. And then I got involved with the, the biggest blackjack game in New York. And I got it uh, from being, like I say, a good worker. And then I ended up with a piece of the game, which is even, you know, uh, a lot more money for me. And uh, I enjoyed it. And then I opened the game on my own. And uh, from there on, I just ended up being in the street. I ended up with a number of business. And uh, that's how I basically went through my whole life, one, one from the other, which I liked for a while. But I never really found anything that... I stuck to for more than a couple of years until I went to work at this pizza place, and I don't even want to mention a name because the guy is such a scoundrel and he hurt so many people, but I did that for 12 years. And this pizza place, strange as it may sound to you, Delilah, because, uh, you know, a pizza place is a pizza place, but pizza places have become now major restaurants. Uh, there was one calls Barro. I don't know if you know about it. It's S, S as in Sam, B as in boy, A-R-R-O. They became the biggest pizza company at the time. And when they sold their pizza place, just to give the idea of how much 
pizza. They were all over the country, all over the world, in the airports. They sold their business for $493 million. And now you think about all these other places now, uh, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Papa John's, billion-dollar corporations, because pizza has become more popular than a hamburger. And that's that a, that's a place that I really enjoyed working. And again, celebrities would come in and there, and there's, there was pictures all over my wall, the walls in the restaurant. I would be interviewed by people on television. The different channels would come down. It, it was it was a nice experience. In the summertime, we'd have a line outside for 200, 250 people, and uh, from all over the world, from all over the world, Delida. It was just an amazing. It was a very exciting thing for me to be involved with in the later part of my life. Well, it sounds like it. Well, how did you come about the reputation of being um, the muscle for the mob? And was it? For any particular family, or were you? How were you connected to the mob well, you in know that what way? Happens with that, like I said, I, I was pretty good with my hands. So uh, every once in a while, you know, if you have these games, although there were always there was never whiskey at these games or nothing, because if you're gambling, you're drinking whiskey, and you lose money, it can be a problem. But sometimes, you know, guys getting in the game, guys arguing one another, and like I said. A lot of times I was able to calm things down verbally, but sometimes things got out of hand, and so it had to be physical. So, again, my reputation came is that I could I could run a game. I worked with a guy that was a real Damon, well, Damon Runyon character, and he was one of the best, I would have to say, if not the best guy running the game. And him and I were perfect partners because he was crude and he was tough. And, like, I was more, uh, how could I say it? I was more pleasant at times. But we had a great, great work ethic, and we keep the game running smooth. Every once in a while, you know, I had to throw a guy out, ask him to get off the table. But you have to do it diplomatically. You just can't go and say, get the hell off the table. You know, then it looks bad. But you whisper in a guy's ear, listen, uh, you know, behave yourself, all right? Or come over. One incident, the guy was doing something wrong, and I caught him. He was trying to make a move on a blackjack table. So I walked over, and I whispered in his ear, I want to talk to you. So uh, I went back to my, because I had a uh, raised chair that I would sit on, and he didn't come. So I went back to him, and I said, listen, I want to talk, and I want to talk to you now. So he came over, and the first words out of his mouth was, you know who I am? I said, I don't know who you are. And I don't care who you are. Do you know who I am? I said, now listen, don't ever do anything like that again. Because if you make another move like that, I'm going to throw you out of the window. I'm going to throw you. And we were on like the ninth floor. I said, I'm going to throw you out of the window. So this guy right away, he ran into the guy that ran the game, Lou. And he told Lou the story. So Lou asked him, he said, what did you do? Did you do something wrong for Joey to correct you like that? So naturally, he told Lou the truth. So I said, well, listen, I wouldn't do that anymore because if he said he's going to throw you out the window, he will throw you out the window. So that was the end of that situation. But that's how those things all came about, Delilah. One thing led to another. But most of the time in the game especially, unless we had we had to go out, you know, a lot of guys owed money. We had to go collect money and sometimes didn't have the money. So, you know, you got to try to talk to us. Listen, you know, you owe the money, get the money, blah, blah, blah. But basically... It was pretty cool. I I liked doing it. And so these these games didn't take place in like what we consider a casino, like in Vegas. What <laughs> what kind of no, a place no. were these were these going on? These games were either in storefronts, which later on we couldn't even storefronts because if you blacken the windows, you know you're putting a tip on yourself. You're doing something illegal. So we always had apartments. We and you know it was easy to get an apartment in those days. You know, even if you were in a luxury building, you know, you duke the, uh, the the superintendent to give him a $100 bill, you know, and you get an apartment. Not like today, you got to have references, you have to have this, where did you live there, how many years. It was very easy to get an apartment. So we had an apartment. You could have an apartment for six months, eight months, if you're lucky, a year, and then you'd have to move. Because most of the cops, uh, at that time, Danny coined the phrase, most of the cops were on the pad. 
and you can get away for a while, but sometimes they'd have to come down and they'd have to bust the game, but then we'd relocate and we'd start all over again. It was an ongoing thing. It was an ongoing thing. It wasn't a problem to start a... Uh, the only time they really gave you a problem for some strange reason, they didn't like crap games because there was too much money involved. So we had to be a little more, I guess, uh, cautious opening up a crap game. But we still had them. Blackjack games with big, big money. Poker games, they left us alone. Because, you know, poker game, you win a couple hundred dollars, and that's it. But crap games and blackjack games, you could win thousands of dollars. And, you know, we'd make a good earn. And if we were chopping 5%, we would make a good earn as running a game. But we you know, always had food. We had, you know, girls working uh, as hostesses serving the men food at the table. And women would come to the game, too, Delilah. It wasn't only for, for men. A lot of lady gamblers and a lot of Asian people loved to gamble. So we had a mixed crowd coming to our games. So they just kept keeping them on the move. <laughs> yeah, you had Went to keep them on the move the... because after a while you had to make a move. Right. Well, you know, one of the other stories, and I don't, I don't want you to give away all the stories because there are tons of them in this book. I mean, everybody, right. it, it's, it's really fascinating to, to read about all these. But one of the other ones, and maybe you don't mind talking about this one, was one about Donald Trump. You, you met Donald Trump. Well, it's funny, but at 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 at, uh, at one time in, in another restaurant that I had a piece of with my friend Joe Babington, we used to cater his parties when he first started doing the apartments in Manhattan. And uh, every time he sold an apartment, we would cater the party for him. And you know, uh, Joe would do the cooking. I'd be there, you know, running the whole thing, making sure everything was run right, like uh, like a maitre d, but not being a maitre d. And uh, I got to know him, I know him, I mean, shook his head, said, hello, how'd you like to spread, et cetera, et cetera. But one night, uh, well, how it happened, actually, it was uh, my wife and our anniversary, I think it was in our 20th year, 22nd, whatever it was. But anyway, the children, my my daughter and my son, uh, they uh, gave us a weekend in Atlantic City when Donald Trump first opened up his hotel. So jokingly, while I'm driving there, I'm telling my wife I'm going to introduce you to Donald Trump. And uh, we got there. I played some crap. Excuse me, I was playing I was playing poker, and she went to the slot machine, and I lost a few dollars, and then she finished with the, uh, the slots. Come on, let's go get something to eat. And who comes walking through the middle of the room? Donald Trump. So I walk over. I introduce myself. I thought, only if you remember me, shook my hand. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And we we're going to go eat. He took us into the dining room, and we were his guests. He told the maitre d' anything and everything they want, and my guest. It was a, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. He's a good man. I, uh, I, I like Donald Trump from what I knew of him, like, I like them. Well, that's, that's again, quite interesting and, and well before the elections, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to tell you the whole story but because uh, I don't even like to mention the bum's name. But a big Hollywood tough guy who thought he was a Hollywood made a very derogatory statement about how a president and that he wanted to punch him in the face. And uh, I got it in my book, exactly what I said. And uh, I'm very happy that I said it because, to me, this guy is just for saying that. Anybody that disrespects our president, any professional ball player doesn't respect the American flag or the national anthem, I have no use for them. And I'll be more than happy to tell each and every one of them to their face to disrespect our country and stay here just like those BS Hollywood celebrities making millions of dollars and you get the nerve to say when George Bush was in office, if he gets reelected, I'm leaving the country. Did any of them leave Delilah? No. Still making millions of dollars here and still 
putting America down. I dislike all of them. Dislike all of them. Hmm. I I hear that. Well, is there I, is there any other brief things from the book that you would like to share, or um, anything that stands out? One of your favorite stories, maybe. Uh. Well, the only thing bad about it, I can't tell the whole story because then they wouldn't want to buy the book. But there are a couple of things. But I, I think the things that I treasured the most, and I'll go back to Denny Griffin right now, meeting Denny, and like I say, I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't have written that book without Denny. But meeting Denny was a great experience for me. Never even seeing him, just seeing his picture on the back of a book but just the conversations that I've enjoyed with him. The people that I have met in my life, a lot of wonderful people, a lot of wonderful people. I met a man who was 93 years old, Chuck Rogers. He was a war hero. I couldn't put him in a book because it was too uh, almost heartbreaking for me because at 93 years old, this man was brilliant. I used to pick him up every day. We leave Queens, where he lived in Queens, we'd go out to Riverhead. He was a war hero. He went down with his ship. A man like that, to me, was just an incredible meet. And like I say, Denny knows this because I've said it to him many, many times. I was never starstruck working at the Copacabana, 24 years old, wearing a tuxedo. I was a pretty nice-looking kid and personable. I got so many different offers from different people to get into movies, but I, 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 I never wanted to do that. I, but I enjoyed meeting the people. I enjoyed meeting the people like uh, <laughs> Danny DeVito. I mean, Danny DeVito, to me, is a hell of a guy. I met him at uh, the pizza place. He used to come in there with Rhea Perlman and his daughter. And uh, we became friendly. And just just a lot of nice, nice people I enjoyed. I listen. Don't get me wrong. Everything wasn't uh, roses for me, but uh, I had a lot of tough times in my life. But I've always said that, and it's it's just a common statement that you know you could be a good fighter and you can get knocked down, and if you don't get up, you're not too good a fighter. So I always I always judge a fighter about getting up again and winning a fight. I've been knocked down a lot in my lifetime. Not. Physically, nobody's ever knocked me down. I've been hit on a jaw. I've been hit a couple of times, but I've never, never been knocked off my feet. But physical situations, emotional situations where I was really knocked down, but I came back, I came back, I came back. And that's, I guess that's basically one of the major stories of my life, to have the ability to come back. Joey, any regrets? Uh, that's a good question. And regrets is a tough word. I like to uh, say mistakes. I made some mistakes, Delilah, some major mistakes, some bad investments, uh, things I should have never even gotten involved with, trying to do the right thing for somebody and end up almost being wronged for it. I think the I like, well, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll ask you a question. If you had to do it all over again, or better still, if you had to pick an age, what age would you like to be in your life now, if you could? Oh, wow. Now that is the question, isn't it? Because you don't even know how old I am. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You, you, you weigh that over in your mind, but I'll answer my question to you, okay? You hear most people say, well, let's just say a guy is in his 60s or 70s. Well, how, how old do you want? Oh, man, I would like to be 25. I'd like to be 35. You know, 30 years old, you're in a prime of your life. If you ask me, I would want to be 15. And you say, well, Joe, why 15? Well, 15, I just graduated from grammar school, and I was going into high school. I quit high school when I was 16. If I was 15 now, I would have never quit because I would have relished an education because I would think maybe how much further I could have gone on in my life if I had a pro I was self-taught. I ended up with a high school diploma, but I would have really, 
really been able to love to have been able to go to college in my later life. Not when I was 15 and 16, because when I got to high school, all I was interested in the girls. I just wanted to be with the girls, all the beautiful girls in high school. But that's, that's, I think, one of the biggest mistakes I made in my life, Delilah. Mm. Well, you know, I, I just have to say thank you so much for coming and sharing all of this with us. And I can't stress the importance of telling these stories and, and writing down these types of stories. People like you or, or just ordinary people, whoever you are out there. It could be my neighbors. I mean, your stories are important and they, have, they hold a place in history somewhere to someone and they have a great meaning to someone. So I, I really encourage people do a journal or write a book or write your, your memoirs because the stories are, are what your legacy is. It becomes part of our history, the history of the human race. So it's very important to me to get that point across. I'm going to go to Denny. Are you still with let us, let Dennis? Me, let, let me just, Delilah, oh, let me sure. just say one thing. Delilah, just let me say one thing, and then yeah. I'll, I'll I'll get off. You could talk to Denny. My friend Ralph Delagati, you, you met, you did an interview with Ralph Delagati. He I wrote did. his book, The Last Casino. He's another guy that I cherish dearly. And Ralph and I uh, have some discussions. and We've talked about my life and other things in my life. And Ralph's a very, very bright young guy. He achieved something that most guys coming out of this neighborhood in Corona didn't achieve, being a boss in a casino in Las Vegas. And Ralph and I have been discussing something, and I really didn't even discuss this fully with Denny, which I will, of course. And Ralph knows some stories about me, and he says, Joe, almost exactly what you said. He says, Joe, your stories is uh, like history. You've got to let the people become aware of these certain stories. Was there a time in my life that I couldn't put in the book with Denny that I'm going to maybe, if I have, uh, I guess, the energy, the ability to do it, to put in the book, that uh, I'm going to see if I could do it, if I do it. But I might, I might do that. And behind you saying what you just did really gave me the impetus to maybe do it. But thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Denny. As usual, you always come to the top of the cup, pal. You're the cream of the crop. Thank you again, <laughs> Delilah. I'll listen to you guys now. Okay, well, don't don't go away. Dennis, I, I, I want you to give listeners information about where they can buy this book. And um, and I also want to know what, what future projects do you have on your plate? Okay. Um, uh, Joey, thanks. Uh, thanks for your input here. You, uh, you covered a lot of ground. You did it very well. Um, I Right now, the a book is available for pre-order on Amazon, and it's currently uh, can be ordered in the Kindle version only. Uh, I think they're asking two ninety-nine or so, around three bucks, a little under for it. Um, the book will officially be released on February twelfth. There's the release date, and right around that time, then the print version, the paperback will also be available. But if you go to Amazon.com under uh, and just do the search for a family business, uh, you'll be able to pre-order the uh, the Kindle version now. I, I want to, uh, before I get into a couple of other projects, I wanted to briefly touch on something that Joey mentioned. He was the personal experience I had, and I don't even think I've ever told Joe about this, so he may be hearing it for the first time. My father was uh, an avid poker player in uh, in Utica, New York. The the one time Utica was known as a a mobbed-up city. I don't know if it is anymore, but back years ago it was. Um, And there was a couple of games per week run by guys with uh, organized crime connections. Well, my father decided that he was going to set up his own game. So he rented an apartment, like Joey mentioned, and uh, 
he he would run the game. He tried not to play in it himself because sometimes he might lose whatever he made from uh, from raking the pots. But um, he would provide uh, you know food and have a little beer and a little booze on hand if, if anybody wanted a drink. And he decided he was going to. Uh, he ran it one night a week, so he decided to take a, a trip to Florida from Utica to, uh, to visit some relatives. And he asked me, I was, I think at the time in my thirties. And he said, would you uh, be willing to, to run the game, not run the game. He says he'd have one of his friends to handle the pots and taking the money and all that. My job was to open the apartment and make sure there was food and, and snacks and whatever available and drinks. And then, uh, when when the game was over, I would lock up, you know, clean up and lock up. So I, I told him, sure. And he was going to be gone for, I think, I think it was about three weeks. So one night after I, the game usually broke up between one and two in the morning. I uh, I did my cleanup stuff. And uh, as I was leaving, we were on the second floor of this building. And I come out and there's three guys out there uh, waiting at the, at the uh, doorway. As I stepped into the street, and I was not comfortable, of course, when I saw these guys hanging. I didn't know who they were, and um, they apparently had been sent. For the first guy says to me, "Is your name Walter Griffin?" It was my father, and I said, "No, it's not. It's I'm his son." Why? I, I wasn't going to take many chances with trying to bullshit these guys, so I I was just up front, and um, one of them says. Your father's getting, I told him it was my father and that he was away. And he said, well, we want you to give him a message when he comes back. I said, okay. He said, tell him that uh, we think he's being a little greedy. And he's drawing business people who used to play at some other games in town are now setting those out and and coming to his game. And uh, he really needs to... uh, to think this over and uh, you know we don't want to have to come back type of thing so <laughs> so anyway they, they they didn't do anything to me they just uh, they were intimidating though it was the message to me was quite clear so i uh, called him in florida the next day and i, I told him what had happened and uh, he said well he said i don't want you to get hurt or anything he says uh, you can suspend the game. I said, no. I said, they're going to wait till you get back. I told him you're out of town. I said, they just wanted to make sure you got the message. He says, okay. So he ended up uh, folding up that game. But that was my personal experience with that type of thing. Uh, these guys were uh, not particularly happy that he was drawing business from uh, from the mob-connected games. So, yeah, they, they tended to get a little short-tempered if, if you were cutting into their profits. You never told rate, me that, Denny. I didn't think I did, Joe. Yeah, so no. that, that was, uh, you know, again, one for the books. But <laughs> if I ever write my own uh, memoirs, uh, I'm going to include that. <laughs> Attaboy. Uh, uh, as far as future products, uh, the, like Joe mentioned, he's contemplating maybe doing something uh, regarding his life again in the future at some point. So uh, if he asked me for any help there, I'd certainly be glad to uh, to give him a hand. The... Uh, the other thing I have going, I've formed a group, as you're aware, called the Transparency Project. It's a Facebook group and designed to uh, try to get more transparency in getting uh, records from the police uh, or other law enforcement-related agencies, medical examiners, and so forth, about uh, about investigations they are doing or have done uh, to murder or suspicious death investigations. Right now, there's a, a, a standard thing. If it's an open case, that exempts them from FOIA requests, uh, compliance, and so forth. So I, I'm working trying to get uh, legislation. Of course, you have to go state by state with this, which is a monumental task. But to uh, to get more transparency and more rights for the survivors or victims of uh, of murder and suspicious death. Oh. The it, as part of that, we are. I'm compiling uh, a book with stories of people who 
have lost loved ones to to murder or suspicious death, and the investigations appear to have either been lacking or non-existent. And the book is called Survivors, the Forgotten Victims of Murder and Suspicious Death. And uh, any proceeds from that book, when it's when it's completed, will be donated to nonprofit victim advocacy groups to help support them. And it, it, it's going to be we've got some very very powerful stories in there, and I hope to have it. Uh, I hope to have the last submission. I'm waiting for the last two by the end of this month. So uh, I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to get that book uh, published and out by late spring or early summer and I'm I'm quite excited about that. I have another project in progress which is about the outcall uh adult entertainment business in Las Vegas, which is after the demise of uh the organized crime control of the casinos, the hidden ownership and control of casinos, uh a lot a lot of the uh mobsters went into the adult entertainment business. And this is about that whole thing and how some computer hackers got into the uh, telephone system and they were able to divert calls that were supposed to go to the uh, mob-controlled escort services. They diverted them to a, to their own service. And it, it's quite a thing. The, the, uh, the name of the uh, book is Wrong Numbers. And it tells the story of all that. And uh, I'm doing that with Glenn Meek. He is an investigative reporter from Las Vegas, been there for years, and he exclusively reported on all this. And funny thing there, they they got, uh, when the mob in New York realized that uh, some of their services were, apparently they were were having issues, something was wrong because they kept uh, their amount of calls for for escorts kept getting dropped, kept dropping. Uh, they sent a guy, they sent a few guys from New York out to Vegas. One of them was, uh, his name was Vinny, and they called him Vinny Aspirins. And uh, he got that, uh, that handle because he was a guy that took care of the mob's headache. What he would do was he used a power drill, a cordless power drill. And uh, when he was interrogating someone, he threatened them with the drill, and at times he would actually drill into their skulls with this drill. And um, a couple of times we've, we've got FBI uh, wiretaps uh, of phone conversations where one of Vinny's uh, partners would be talking to the people back in New York, and the guy says, Okay, he says, I just want to let you know that Benny's working a guy over in the next room, so if you hear any screams, don't be don't be alarmed. <laughs> so Benny Aspirins was credit. Anyway, that, that, that project is, is near completion as well. So I've got a few things in the oven, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm keeping busy. Yes, you Good. certainly are. And, you know, you're going to have to take that time to write your stories too, Denny, because you have a ton of them with all of uh, – you know, the people that you've met over the years and not only in your career, but also, you know, in your writing career, you've, you've really, you've rubbed elbows with a lot of people. Let's put it that way. And I'm sure the stories you have to tell about that would, would make a book in itself. Yeah. I just listen to you telling everybody, you know, part of history. So you're motivating me. Good, good. <laughs> well, once again, it's been great to be with you on air again, and we, you know, we'll we'll be bringing up some other shows here before too long, I'm sure. Um, I know you've you've got a lot of things going on, and and time is of the essence. But again, Joey, thank you so much for coming on today for sharing the stories in your book, the, a family business. And thank you. Thank you very much. I wish you both the the most success with this because it's it's really a great read. So Thank until you. next time, everyone stay safe out there and and beyond important, be kind to each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>